Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. To my left is Mr. Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Possessor of the greatest laugh in music podcastery. Is that right? It's, t- it's official. Is it official? It is. This is fantastic news. It probably means you're not going to laugh at all no, once no. in this episode. That's it. Mark and I are sat here with the wonderful Michael Watts. Welcome. <laughs> I've always found Mark's laugh rather irritating. <laughs> Now you be irritated by my laugh as well. No, I don't mind you. You're, you're, you're better modulated. <laughs> that's hysterical. Well, we've got off to a great start Yes, but that's splendid. Mark now won't laugh at all. I'll have to do the laugh. Yes. Michael, it's wonderful to have you here. Michael is a living legend Ooh. of, well, journalism, not just music journalism. Yeah. But... Barely living, barely living legend. We'll sort of see how barely living by the end of the episode. But, Michael, we've been trying to get you on this podcast for a long time, and and I think we finally had to threaten physical violence and offer a bottle of wine to get you here. But here you are, and we're really honoured to have you. The money has helped. (laughs) You mean the bus fare? No, Uber, um, let, let's let's try and be serious. Mark, you're Ma- laughing. Sorry. <laughs> for, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, Michael was one of the most important music journalists on Melody Maker and then had an illustrious career on Fleet Street after that. You were an editor, a deputy editor, a features editor. You've had a terrific career in journalism. Maybe the most famous thing about... Michael, you, you, you'll hate me for saying this, but Michael is the interviewer to whom David Bowie, falsely as it turned out, claimed that he was gay and always had been in mm. 1972. And we may talk a little bit about Bowie and some of the other artists that you've interviewed over the years. Mm-hmm. You came to London from the Midlands and you wrote the first pieces of your career I believe for the Walsall Observer. <laughs> tell us, tell us about wh- where you got started as a journalist and as a music writer. Well, I, I worked on a local newspaper in the West Midlands, as you say, the Walsall Observer, and it was at a time when the Midlands heaved with exciting new groups like yeah. The Move, Spencer Davis, The In Betweens, who became Slade. Robert Plant and his band of joy and the Moody Blues. I mean, strange as it may seem now, the Moody Blues playing at the Stork Club in (laughs) Walsall with Denny Lane wailing away on harp and screaming, you've got dimples in your jaw, in your drawers, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) One of the best R&B bands of my tender youth until, of course, I saw the Lipman Rao folk blues tours of the late 60s and early yeah. 70s. And then I became aware of Howling Wolf, John Lee Hooker, yeah. Skip James, who was my particular favourite. You saw them in the flesh. It was quite odd, really, that these teenagers, white teenagers, yeah. were obsessed with the tragic stories of these <laughs> ancient men who were shortly to die. But it, it yeah. was an extraordinary phenomenon of that particular Are you period. saying they put the moody blues in the shade? I'm afraid so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid so. But, of course, every self-respecting white boy in that period was steeped in the history of the Delta Blues. and uh, And also, I guess, the appropriation of that music by white 
musicians, notably Bob Dylan, but of course many others in this country, uh, guitarists like Clapton and Peter Green and so forth. Later on in my life, I did meet Dylan on the set of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. This was in Durango in Mexico. It was not yet a time of Mexican drug cartels, but it was still (laughs) quite hairy. You were searching for the cartels and you couldn't Uh, find them. I did see an actual gunfight between an extra and a local in which I can't remember which one it was, but they got winged in the arm and whisked away. It was quite... Tough place. You, so you witnessed that? Did, did Dylan and Sam Peckinpah witness that? Well, Peckinpah probably did, because Peckinpah was an alcoholic and pretty much... And like guns. Out and, and like guns, pretty much off his head. But I was there, I'd flown down from New York because I was at that point Melody Maker's American editor. Sounds very grand, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, it was quite grand because I was living in Upper East Side, New York, and sure. my, na- my neighbour in the next block was... Frank Sinatra, but I, of course, my ass was hanging out my trousers. And uh, (laughs) the doorman, he had a problem uh, as I walked past him, letting me in to the building. Anyway, I was chasing after Dylan, and we were shuttling backwards and forwards on a plane from the film set to Mexico City, where Dylan was recording the soundtrack and knocking on heaven's door. And on one occasion... I flew back, having got nowhere in Mexico City with him, and he gave me this... Well, I didn't know it was him at first, but I felt this terrific nudge in my ribs sitting on the plane, and I turned around and I stared into these cold blue eyes of Bob. No smiles at all. And he he wouldn't be interviewed, and it was very difficult to actually say, will you be interviewed, but I, I got a very clear impression he didn't want to be. But he was very keen to talk about the MM. When Dylan first came to London, yes. when he was appearing in the play, I think Madhouse on Castle Street, was it? Yes, I so that would have been, what, 60 Because Because he's always been that very inquiring spirit. He came into the MM trying to find Max Jones, who was yeah. a big-time jazz writer. Yeah. Max wasn't there, so they threw him out of the office. <laughs> That's fantastic. They thought he was what was then known in the vernacular of the times, a lumber or a pest. So, <laughs> so he, never, he never got... Dylan got, was got thrown out of the Melbourne He was thrown out of the office. We actually have... He uh, remembered all that. Yeah, well, we, we have a Max... Because Max, via his son Nick, is one of our writers. And we do have a Dylan interview that, that Max did after that, obviously. Yes. But, but, but he, he did... There was, yeah. you know, there, was, there was something... Of course, none of this quite matches... The Beast, Richard Green's. <laughs> in, he got to, up to Dylan's hotel during the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970 and got so drunk that he couldn't remember a word Dylan said. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Michael, I mean, how did you come to write on Melody Maker in the first place? Give us a little background on that, because I know that you started there around the same time as several other great writers, some of whom we've had on the podcast... Richard Williams, notably, that you you came from provincial newspapers. You'd actually cut your teeth on local journalism. You actually knew how to do this stuff. Well, I I don't know what Richard said about it, but so many of us, if not most of us, on the MM at that period in the first half of the 1970s had worked on local newspapers. Charles was the same, wasn't he? We were professional journalists as compared to the 
kindergartens and wunderkinds <laughs> of the enemy. like me who came along yeah, later. Who had no basic newspaper training at all, but I covered everything from golden weddings on my local paper to crime stories, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, often in Walsall in the West Midlands, involving gypsies. There was nothing the good people of Walsall liked more than to burn down a, a Diddy Coy's car- caravan. Right. right. Oh, God. Uh, so you had to do those kind of things and be prepared to write about what one might think of as minutiae. But I also had this column. I think it was called Mick Watts on Entertainment. <laughs> so you were Mick then. I remember sending you an email. Uh, I think it, uh, it was high quote-unquote Mick, and I think you came back with less of the Mick. But I guess in that era of Mick Jagger, every Michael automatically became a Mick. Well, at a certain point in life, I, I gave up... I, I sold the name Mick. To, I sold <laughs> to it Jack- to Mick Brown, actually. <laughs> who who also has been here. Yes, who, who I've always thought ever since was something of an imposter. <laughs> There's only one, one Mick in yes. this game. But I, I gave it up because I, I wanted to be... Taken more seriously. More, yeah, mm. I wanted to be more formal. Did, did, did that coincide with you arriving at Melody Maker? It was just... No, I was, all, I was Mick on Melody Maker for a good time. Were, Were you? you? Oh, yeah. yeah. But was I always went by the byline, Michael. Because the back of oh, my... Oh, I see what you mean. The, ah, the yes. byline was with Michael. Yeah. yeah. But on my local paper, it was... Mick um, Watts on Entertainment. It was Mick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to say. And I mean, how, I mean, how long did that column last? And and it was who about did a couple of years. About? And you know, I was in the position, lucky as uh, I now realise, because not not too many other people I've ever met have that kind of power on a local newspaper. But I was quite bolshy and pushy about Hard it. Hard to but imagine, really. It is. Uh, but <laughs> I interviewed every uh, musician who passed through. So, for example, when Ginger Baker's Air Force played at Birmingham Town Hall, I interviewed George Harrison and Eric Clapton. I sat between them and they were kind of like, kind of like grumpy old men. It was like being with <laughs> Waldorf and Statler from the Muppets. <laughs> they, they didn't have a good word to say about, about anything. But then also, of course, there were the local bands, and there was a, a kind of profusion of them. People like Black Sabbath, whom I interviewed at the local Methodist Hall. Fantastic. And Edgar Broughton Band. Oh, yeah. Who, of course, are managed by their mother, who was also their roadie. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's oh, fantastic. Yes. Yes. Their mother, who was yes. also their roadie. I, I, I saw them, God knows how many times, at free concerts in the yeah. park around 69.70, doing the whole Out Demons Out, out Demons routine. Out, yes, yeah. of course. As we would say in the Midlands, Boston. <laughs> what, is it, what happened to your accent, Mr Watts? It's a good point. <laughs> my mother you can, claims you can that... Clearly still my do mother it. claims that I, I never had an accent, but she was possibly... You were born a with bit, BBC English. Possibly a little bit biased. <laughs> yeah. Received pronunciation has always come easily to me. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah. But it was such a great appeared in the mm. late 60s, what? probably everywhere, but particularly in the Midlands, because sure? there, there were so many of these bands. Yeah. And Mothers, for example, mm. in the Midlands, Famous. which was an in old uh, furniture place. 
Edge Baston or Erdington? Erdington. Erdington. Yeah, Erdington. That's where it was. You know, everybody who was everybody in the so-called British underground played there. Yeah, yeah. I think bits of Floyd's Amagama were recorded mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And then after they played at Mother's, they went to one of my all-time favourite clubs, the Elbow Room in Aston, near Villa's football ground. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where Steve Winwood, who was, of course, the most famous yes. local boy, I think that's where he formed Traffic, actually. Yeah. I was also friendly with a, a group probably largely forgotten now, called the Red Caps. And they had a minor hit with Shout, which, of course, was covered the following year by Lulu, by Lulu right. with much greater success. Originally an Isley Brothers yeah. song. Originally yeah. the Isley yeah. Brothers song. But the Red Caps were essentially two brothers <laughs> called Walker. They actually were the real Walker brothers. And um, they were tough lads off the estates. And I hung out with them. And Mick Walker, with whom I was particularly friendly, he introduced me to lots of local musicians. I can always remember Roy Wood coming up the footpath to the front door of council house where I lived with my parents. And my father, (laughs) looking through the window half standing and saying, bloody hell, who the hell is he? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, because, you know, (laughs) there were lots of freaky people who came to my house. I also met through Mickey Walker, Jasper Carrot, who I knew as Bob (laughs) Davis. And uh, his career echoed Billy Connolly's, really. They were musicians, folk singers, whose funny patter became their whole... Yeah, yeah. Career. Yeah. Mickey Walker, who was quite a hard man, he eventually became a bodyguard to Elton John and <laughs> to and to Freddie Mercury, who probably needed it. Uh, Dave Walker, his brother, who was the singer, Mickey was the bass player, he became one of the many lead singers of Fleetwood Mac. You don't remember that? Do you? No. There have been so many. Yeah, well, it was that period right. when they were marching through people every sort of ten minutes, weren't they? Yeah. The Bob Welches of this world so, and so on. eventually... <laughs> Sorry. Mick Watts on entertainment <laughs> became so famous... <laughs> In the Walsall area. And beyond, and because beyond next Walsall. thing I know is I've got the call from the editor of The Melody Maker. I ah. see. A man called Ray Coleman. He mm-hmm. was a kind of slim, trim man with balding, with oversized glasses. And he looked like the... <laughs> showbiz editor of a national tabloid. He was very kind of beguilingly old-fashioned mm. and sort of reassuring, really, because, you know, there weren't people exactly like him on the Walsall Observer, but you knew, the, you knew the type. It wasn't like being confronted by Nick Logan, for example. Right. <laughs> anyway, he hired me. Yeah. Which In was, 69, 1970? No, he was 70. 70. Mm. Yes, I think Richard Williams joined... Melody Maker in 69, because, you know, he's a much older man than I am. Saucer of milk for table 12. (laughs) Although he looks younger than all of us put together. That that is a depressing fact. Well, he he discovered the eternal secret. (laughs) Uh, But he was very very fortunate that uh, I was hired by the MM, because I I was on the verge of getting fired Uh from the Warsaw Observer. One night I went back in a rather drunken, gleeful mood 
and trashed the office and forgot everything about it until I went in the following morning <laughs> and was met with all these people with grave faces, my colleagues, shaking their heads. And, and then I noticed that a, a metal trash can had gone through the window. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, you know... So rock and roll, I know. Mick. It wasn't, <laughs> Mick. wasn't exactly a, a Hollywood... TV set, but it wasn't Keith enough, Moon to, enough to get you a TV set out the window. Well, but, we'll, we'll but as close about, as Walsall we'll talk got about, to we'll that. Talk about we'll talk about Keith <laughs> So, yeah, most of the staff had been on local papers. When I arrived, within an hour of being there, I was sent to interview Diana Ross. Fantastic. Within an hour? Within an hour. I had no preparation That's at all. amazing. And I remember, I think it was in a room at EMI, a sort of dimly lit room, and uh, Diana Ross literally breathed glamour. <laughs> and I can't remember anything she said, because she probably never said anything interesting no. at all. But I do remember her hands. She had these amazing hands with these, you know, you know, the way black women look after their nails. Yes. And all I can remember is these sort of hands waving around with what looked like sugared almonds on their tips. Yes. And I thought this was tremendously impressive. Yeah. So I left that interview thinking, hey, I've arrived. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm in the big time. Denny Lane, he's the part. Right. So it, and then it kind of went on from there. Yeah. I mean, most of the, most of the MM interviews, certainly in the beginning when I was there, we, we either interviewed in the Golden Egg in Fleet Street... <laughs> place which no longer exists. Thank God. Or we went to the Red Lion pub, which is up an alleyway. We met loads of people there. I took Del Shannon there mm -hmm. once. He was, I liked a great deal. He was terrific. And he'd walked into the office with the so-called mayor of Sunset Strip, Rodney Bingenheimer. Ah. And then later, when I was the MM editor in Los Angeles and living in a very decrepit, rather sinister Chateau Marmont. You lived at the Marmont. Uh, <laughs> I went nipped down the road to Rodney Bingenheimer's E-Club, E standing for English, of course, because he was a tremendous Anglophile. And I recall that I went there once, and either Michael Oakes or somebody acting for Michael Oakes took this great picture of Led Zeppelin yes. with all 12, these, all all these young ladies, yeah. which included baby groupers, we call them, which included mm -hmm. Sable Star yeah. and Laurie, Laurie Mattix. Mattix. Yeah. Or Laurie and, Lightning. Uh, then I, I, you know, this caused great consternation. Um, with the Robert Zeppelin Plant's wives. marriage, yeah, yes. in particular. In fact, he rang up the MM in an explosion of fury at running this was this great? I mean, when I when I did a, an oral history of Led Zeppelin, it was a great. Apparently, Robert calls his wife Maureen at home yes. in you know, Nick Kidderminster <laughs> and goes, "You can't believe everything you read in Melody Maker." Not that Robert speaks like that, but he does rather than <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't lost it. He has still got. He's got a posh Midlands accent. It's posh not black bad. country. It's okay. But he's a lord of. The black country. Yes. Yes. You know, and I, the thing I like about him, he's stayed pretty true to his roots, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. I think he still has a place. Does he still have a place in Kidderminster? Yeah, he still has his place there, and he's still got a, his place in Wales. How, right? place yeah. in How long... Because you were in America for quite a long time for Melody Maker, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Both in Los Angeles and New York. How long were you there in total? total about? Probably about five years. Yeah. I mean, it was a great period in my life because sure. the record industry was so affluent. Yeah. And the bands had terrific licence to do 
whatever they wanted, to behave as they wanted. So it was hedonistic and freaky. <laughs> I remember going on tour once with Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. one of the more interesting and erudite men I've ever met. But we played at Smith College, which was a very posh girls' school in Massachusetts. Mm. I think... I, I quote, for girls of high ability and promise. <laughs> However, they turned out to be like the girls of St Trinian. <laughs> <laughs> and they threw, this, they threw this terrific party for us in the ladies' lavatory <laughs> at Smith College. And, I, I mean, I have this distinct snapshot in my head. Everybody sitting on the bogs, looking across this marble floor, everybody else sitting on the bogs, <laughs> and these girls milling around, and you're wondering where the hell this was going to go. <laughs> It really was great fun. And, of course, in Frank's retinue, he had a lot of interesting people like the GTOs, who are unashamedly groupies. But he also had, and I met her, Cynthia Plastercaster, (laughs) one of the Plastercasters, Mm -hmm. whose vocation was to model the penises of superstars like Jimi Hendrix Mm -hmm. and put them in a museum somewhere. I'd like to see that museum now. (laughs) I'm not sure there's ever been an official museum. No, but but she still has, Cynthia still has her... You're in a bank vault in in Geneva. I still have her business card as well. (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. (laughs) Yeah. It's but, never far from my person. But also, you were very, very quick on the uptake with bands like the New York Dolls. I mean, some of the earliest writings about the Dolls. Is, is yeah, the... well, if you lived in New York, you couldn't escape the New York Dolls no. because they were the flavour of the moment and all you know, the rock hacks in New York seized on them very quickly. You know, I'm not sure in retrospect whether musically they were that great, but they were great for yeah. two albums. And, they, you know, things like Jet Boy I still occasionally play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did see them play at uh, a place, unfortunately, long, no longer there, which was the Rainbow Room at... Bieber. At Bieber, which is a most amazing venue. And that actually was a, a great, great night. They mm. did play... Really well, do but you, yeah, do I've got, you ever? I've, I have an ashtray my father stole from the Rainbow Room in my flat. Still got so, it. Yeah, got it. Oh, yes. Bring it in. <laughs> yeah. do, do you? I mean, because so many people always talk about the enemy in those days. And <laughs> do, do, do you? And I mean, maybe some of the other you know writers that you were on the staff with. I mean, is there ever a, a, a slight resentment when towards that when you guys were such great writers and arguably? There were better writers on the Melody Maker. It just didn't have that Nick Logan kind of hip young gunslinger element to it. The traditions were so different. Yeah. You know, the, the MM was a very old, historically old yeah. paper. It began in 1929. It was founded upon jazz and jazz bands. Yeah. It also had this, it was the mouthpiece of the music industry. And of course, when the enemy came along, that worked totally against it, you know, because. The enemy, punk, Sex Pistols, all of it was about a kind of rebellion mm-hmm. and overthrowing everything that yep. we stood for. I mean, unfortunately, at some point, the MM became also a mouthpiece for prog rock. Still popular yes. with Jeremy Clarkson, but actually <laughs> none of the rest of us liked it apart from Chris Welch. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. It, it sold tons of records. Yeah, yeah. And Ray Coleman, the editor, was... He followed the chart, the album charts religiously. Right. And so whoever was in the top five yeah. of the album charts, yeah. he was very... You know, it was a logical thing yeah. to do, I to mean, write about. As a consumer, I mean, I was a Melody Maker reader from 69 through to about yeah. 73. 73, yeah. I was 
relocated from London compulsorily for a couple of terms, shall we say. We were rusticated. <laughs> I had an altercation with the Metropolitan Police involving hashish and was packed off to boarding school by my parents. Uh, but when I go. came back in 73, yeah. everyone I knew had moved over to the NME. Yeah. It was literally... 72, 73, wherever I went, people... I I think it was, personally, I think it was... Well, I can't again say your experience, but I think the enemy really happened round about 75. You know, I I remember... (laughs) I remember once going to Copenhagen to interview Poker, a band in whom I had little interest, really. (laughs) But I was on the plane next to Nick Logan. You know, Nick Logan was then a kind of down-table sub at the enemy... I could never have predicted. Yeah. Nick would go reinvent so well. Yeah. No, uh, reinvent, yeah. he didn't really invent, reinvent it. His predecessor, Alan Smith, that, was right. largely who, whose stuff you know we have on Rock's back yeah. pages, and and I remember having lunch with him and him sort of saying yeah. things to that. I, I think it's very important that Alan Smith gets, gets credit. Credit. Get credit. But yeah. you know the enemy writers, we mm. had amazing respect for them, and this mm. rivalry between us was great. It was mm-hmm. healthy, wasn't it? You know, I mean, I, I thought. Ian MacDonald, uh, yeah. whose book on the Beatles is peerless. Yeah, yes, yes. Charlie Murray was a terrific writer. They had others yeah. as well who were, I, mean, I, I really respected. Yeah, I think Brian Case is one of the great writers about jazz, for example, and he was at that time on the NME. He moved to the Melody Maker later. The thing is, what I've I got a bit say, tired of is that, that my job here is that I'm now reading Melody Makers at a time when I'd stopped reading them oh, at right, the time. So you're yeah. discovering. And, and I'm stuff. discovering yeah. how good. Melody Maker. Yeah. You, know, so you in particular, Richard Williams in particular, yeah. Chris Charlesworth, I think, is a very yeah. good writer. Well, um, Chris Charles was a great news editor, yeah. actually. Because um, he, he, he was, again, somebody had worked on... On local rag, yeah. Yorkshire, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's a real pleasure for me yeah. rediscovering all this stuff and that, that I do think that the history of British pop journalism has been somewhat skewed by this idea that yeah. the enemy became the winners mm. of some sort of battle well, of the 70s. Yeah. They, are, they are much more astute at... It's better design. ...manipulating and creating their yeah. own publicity. I think it did look better. It, it looked, looked less uh, the enemy, didn't it? You know, I, I, I looked uh, the other day for the first time in decades at one of the old MMs. I mean, the typeface is... It's yeah. two-point unreadable. <laughs> you know, yeah. It was a challenge even to read it, but the, the layouts, yeah, were very poor. However, mm. it, with the exception of the front pages, mm. the front pages were classic mm. tabloid. Yes. And they were amazingly powerful. Mm-hmm. And whoever we put on the front page, whatever it was, you know, who's touring or mm-hmm. whose album art, it sold records. Yeah. It sold records and it sold tours. You could go to New York, you'd see it on the newsstands. Sure. And it was amazingly yeah, yeah. Um, attractive to yeah. be a member of MM, so you're, you know, I, out there in New York yeah. on the stands. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other myths that, that the enemy was the first paper to really write about punk, and this simply isn't true. Caroline Kuhn was writing, yeah. and in Sounds, Johnningham yeah. were writing about punk, well, really before anyone on the enemy that, got That brings got, me yeah. to mention uh, oh. a piece... <laughs> yes, yes, sorry, I had to bring it up. A piece that you wrote, which you haven't got on, on RBP as yet, yes. but you wrote a piece in September 76 called So Shock Me, Punks. And did I? You did, you did. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I can't it, remember. OK, and it was a little bit reactionary, but you did yeah. then go on to write about... The first of the three pieces that we're featuring... Yeah on the homepage, is your account of being on tour in America with the Pistols. But you did write this piece, So Shock Me Punks, and at that point you were a little bit negative towards punk rock as it it was sort of emerging at that point. Well, I think there's a 
I think there's a very good rationale for that. Mm. First of all, I was older. Popular music is forever teenage, mm. as John Savage might say. Mm. You know, it's always reflecting the tastes of the current generation, which is always rebelling against the previous one. So that makes nostalgists of the rest of us. You know, we are proof sitting here talking about stuff that happened 50 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And the enemy, because it had uh, a less stuffy background and it hide all these people like Charlie Murray from the, underground the British press. underground yeah. press, they had no constraints, really, not the constraints that were placed upon us, sure. trying to sure. cover yeah. who was sure. heading the yeah. album charts. But as we, I said, we, we had a, a built-in disadvantage. Yeah. No, but equally, as I said, that Caroline Coon was writing about punk very, very early. And shortly you know, after... it, was, it was to Ray Coleman's credit that he hired her. Right. You know, the rest of the staff didn't care for her presence. And I think he'd also said something which uh, probably is not much remarked upon mm -hmm. on Rockbuck pages, I think, looking back, we were pretty sexist. You know, it was very male-orientated. And Caroline yeah. Kuhn, bless her, had a kind of difficult job trying to come in and assert herself and write about music, which, yeah. frankly, most of the people sure. well, Caroline went hated. From, she went from sort of literally writing about kind of Gilbert O'Sullivan to yeah. writing about The Clash and going out with Paul Simonon yeah. in the space of a year. Clash. And managing The Clash, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it seems because your she friend... She didn't have a problem because yeah. she was dyslexic. Yeah. You're, you're, the you're, subs hated her because they couldn't... They had to turn make her copy. When I met your friend Valerie Wilmer, Val Wilmer, last year, that's one of the things she said about The Melody Maker, is she felt very conscious as a woman yes. that it was a distinctly kind of misogynist, sexist... Aspect attitude towards yes. women amongst the staff there, yes. and it's certainly, you know, it, it's something which still sort of. Is I very hope pleasant. she accepted me because well, she I had. gave I gave a lot of gigs to her, <laughs> um, so she was probably nicer towards me. But I think looking back now, I can, when you look at it in the context of what's going on today and mm. hashtag Me Too, or that no, yeah, yeah. there was never any sexual harassment <laughs> that I know about. <laughs> yes, it, it does seem that way. Sure. But the good thing was that it gradually, through people like Caroline Kuhn mm -hmm. and Vivian Goldman, yes. the presence of women became... It made itself felt mm -hmm. more. And a lot then, of women photographers started emerging. A lot of women photographers, yeah. yeah. You know, Penny Smith. Absolutely. And, Sheila uh, Rock. Yeah. Sheila, Jill, Jill Fermanowski, yeah. Uh, Jill Fermanowski, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it did change, yes. but I think we, we'd have to... Hold our hands up. Yeah. We were a kind of boys' club, you know. We, yeah. we drank hard, and yeah. it was exclusive of women, I think. Sure. Michael, we'll talk about one other piece before moving on to everything else that's new on RBP, which is an interview you did with Bowie in Berlin yeah. in early '78. He's yeah. on the set of Just a Gigolo, the film being directed by, yeah. by uh, terrible uh, David Hemming. <laughs> terrible film. Terrible, terrible, terrible film. Of... Do you know one of the funny things about that film? You may, you may know this, but that film starred Bowie with Kim Novak yeah. and Marlene Dietrich. I met Kim Novak. I didn't meet Marlene Dietrich. No, that's The reason being the that piece. she was in Paris. And Bowie and Marlene Dietrich never, ever met although they had these scenes together. How extraordinary. And Marlene Dietrich died not too long after, right, right. after this. But it, it was a, a dreadful film. But to me, it was interesting, in Bowie terms, it was interesting because he'd changed so much by 1978. 
Was that very much what the piece is about? Because you had interviewed yeah. him. He was, I don't know how many times, he was considerably more heterosexual by 1970. Yeah, but, it, but I, I, I was particularly interested to revisit this piece because you had done that famous interview. He actually says, he said in an interview with Roy Hollingworth, another Melody yeah. Maker writer we, yeah, we mentioned. Yeah, we must remember Roy. Yeah, yeah. A year after that interview yeah. you did... He said, yeah, it was Melody Maker that made me. It was that yes. piece by Mick Watt. Yes. And I became a performer after that. So he really kind of credited that particular piece with changing something in his attitude towards performance. Well, I interviewed him a lot of times, and not just for the MM. I went down to Beckenham just as the Ziggy thing was breaking. I don't know whether you've got that piece in your files, but... We spoke for a long, long time. He was living in whatever the name of that famous um, place was. Mm-hmm. Some, something Hall. Beckenham. Hadworth Hall or uh, something. Hadley, Had, I don't something know. Hall, I can't remember. Yeah. But anyway, I remember going there. It was a rather nice place. And the first people I met were Angie Bowie mm-hmm. and their son, the then Zowie. Zowie. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. And he'd not seen his father in his Ziggy Stardust makeup with orange hair. Bowie eventually appeared from downstairs, walked into the room, and the kid took one look at Bowie and sort of howled with fright. <laughs> and then a, a person, a minion, had to come along and take the child away while we had this conversation. How extraordinary. We, we, we couldn't sit down and, and talk about it. That period really was... Ex- I mean, I do think that... I mean, I, I toured across Texas roughly in that period, maybe a little later with Bruce Springsteen, who I thought had equivalent charisma, although he was a completely different person. I mean, I I think I can legitimately say that I saw the future of rock and roll before John Landau. (laughs) (laughs) You just didn't say it. I think with Bowie, I think he was the future of Mm -hmm. rock and roll. Mm -hmm. I don't think that tag ever got applied to him. But when I met him, and in that, I mean, in the pre-Ziggy period, the hunky-dory period, I also interviewed Tony DeFries. He's rather, yeah. He's rather, well, sinister manager, <laughs> but a, but a, but a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant huckster. Mm-hmm. And DeFries was the son of a Shepherd's Bush market trader who'd become a lawyer in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And he told me that Bowie and Angie came into his offices at Mainman. What a naff name that is. Yeah. <laughs> and he said they were holding hands. And he said, I always remember, he said, they were like two lost children, Michael. And he had such big plans for them. Mm. And Bowie wanted, although he'd had the big hit with Space Oddity, he was really falling. His career was ailing. And he wanted DeFries to get him out of a lot of deals and set up a new, new ones. Yeah, yeah. Which DeFries duly did, but DeFries was a very uncomfortable person eventually for Bowie to be around. And I think much of the freak show that revolved around Bowie, a lot of that was caused by, engineered by DeFries, mm-hmm. who had interesting tastes, I think. <laughs> um, but Bowie told me in Beckenham that particular time, he's right from the start, he wanted to be much more than a pop star. And I think pretty soon he felt constrained by his bisexual image, mm. and also by the fact that de Vries wanted to make him a commodity. Mm-hmm. I mean, de Vries actually told me, he said, I, I see David as a skyscraper on Sixth Avenue. He had all these plans. 
Not long after that, I remember there was a picture, I think also taken in Beckenham, of Bowie as Ziggy and Angie with her cropped hair looking very butch. Mm. And the headline in the sun was, which is mummy. (laughs) And Bowie, I think, really wanted to escape from that. Yeah, yeah. It really was irksome. I mean, you know, his move to Berlin, which was basically a year and a half. Well, first of all, he went to America, did Young Americans. Mm. And then got totally wasted. And then went to Berlin. Yes, and then the move to Berlin, producing that extraordinary trilogy of of albums. And, you know, people talk about almost too much about Bowie's reinvention, but actually for him, they were necessary steps to maintain his sanity. Well, I think his gift and his curse Mm. was that he could inhabit any style or idea and yet at the same time remain true to himself. Mm. It felt kind of real, not yeah. not forced. Of course, what his critics, his crusty critics said, mm-hmm. maybe people like Richard Williams, I don't know. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, they said he he's not authentic, uh, I suppose, meaning in the tradition of yeah. 12-bar blues, rock and roll, and so on and so forth. But, you know, is is a white guy playing... 12-bar blues on a guitar anymore. Well, ex- exactly. I mean, fact, and this is what I mean by Bowie being yeah, said, yeah. creating a kind of template for what came after where you could play with all sorts of musical yeah. forms and not be tied down I, by those restrictions. We, we touched on this when David Took was here about this, this notion of authenticity being inherently yes. fraudulent. Yes. That, 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 you know, which it is. Which it is, yes. particularly in something like pop music. Yes. It's the bane of our lives now that, that say, there's a whole generation, particularly in America, of people really demanding some sort of notion of authenticity, which yeah. strikes me as entirely fake. Mm-hmm. You know, the concept of samples. Yes. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, uh, ripping off other people's records, we might have called it back in 1973. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to move on. Yeah. Or, or this is going to end up, this will be a two-hour podcast, which which would be great for us, not so great for our producer. So what we would say is please stick around, Michael, and just jump in with anything that occurs to you. But we do need to just briefly talk about what else is new on, yeah. on RBP. And so I'll just skirt through... The featured artist is is the great Swamp Dog, Jerry Williams. We have three pieces about Swamp Dog, who is a fascinating, very short yes. rhythm and blues singer who kind of reinvented himself mm-hmm. as a rather subversive kind of rock and soul slash funk singer-songwriter in 1970 with this extraordinary album, Total Destruction to Your Mind. He had been a singer, he'd had like very minor hits, and he had been hired at Atlantic. He says in an interview with Andrew Purcell from 2000, he was hired mm. because Atlantic felt they had to hire some black producers. Right. So he mm. sort of came in on that ticket, wasn't given an awful lot to do, did then produce some amazing records by people like Doris Duke and even Solomon Burke. Mm-hmm. And then basically woke up one morning and decided he was going to call himself Swamp Dog and he was just going <laughs> to write about whatever the hell he wanted to. He wanted to break out of kind of soul music, per se. So there's this, this great piece from Rolling Stone in 1970 by the late John Morthland, which catches Jerry at this very moment where he just, he's, he just talks about the decision to 
to just, I mean, he said somewhere, and I don't know if it was in this piece, he said, commencing in 1970, I sang about sex, niggers, love, rednecks, war, peace, dead flies, homewreckers, sly stone, my daughter's politics, revolution, and blood transfusions. <laughs> Okay, so it's not it's not an everyday story of 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 R and B producers, but I mean he has some he has a new album out this this week, which is which is a kind of country album, and then he's always straddled the sort of yeah, yeah. You know, country yeah. soul divide. Just fascinating yeah. little guy, so funny, such we, a funny we, man. We had this thing a few weeks back in the podcast. There's a quote: He never really sold any records. I mean, a, a, yeah. as an artist, he never really sold any records, but he had a lot of very good songwriting credits and production credits. And so he'd go into these offices, these record companies, and they'd be basically sneering at him. He said, then I'd go out and I'd get into my Cadillac and drive back to my fabulous ranch mm-hmm. because I, he didn't need to sell records. Yeah. He was making a great deal of money from yeah. all these other sources. I don't know about a great deal of money, but enough. Oh, I'm, And he's always yeah. somehow... He's just one of those great kind of hustlers with a fabulous sense of humour. I and love he, that cover he, of that album where yeah. he's standing on the table. That's what we've got on Rock's Back Pages this, this week. Oh, it's fantastic. That picture of, of him tap dancing for these sort of white corporate executives. So we tell the story of that album cover and identify the people in it. That's right. And it's, it, he's just delightful. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I've never met him. I did get a letter from him once. I would love to. He made an album a couple of years ago called uh, Life Loss or Love Loss and Auto-Tune. <laughs> I mean, it just, it, it, it says everything about the guy. Um, but well, they're well worth reading. We're now getting, worth reading. Yeah, definitely worth reading. I mean, Michael, if you've never heard Swamp, though, I think you would find him immensely I amusing. Him, yeah. Start with total destruction to your mind and then move on to Gaga Maggot. Tell us, I mean, in a sort of site, I mean, not exactly a kind of New York theme, but they were, they established themselves in New York at CBGB's along with all the punk bands. The Cramps. Yeah, this is our audio interview for this week. It's Martin Aston interviewed in March 86, which is about their 10th anniversary of their existence, somewhere around that. Yeah, it is. It starts off with them talking about, well, it's about the album A Date With Elvis and their obsession with all things Elvis. They talk about what A Date With Elvis would really be like, which would apparently be him reading to you, <laughs> about how Rick Nelson was actually weirder than Elvis because Rick Nelson was subversive by being a middle-class Los Angelino doing this sort of rock and roll mm. music. They deal with the accusations of being a pastiche band and the, the the difference in rockabilly and rock and roll, and they mm. sneer at rockabilly as a term. Then they talk about gravest hits, and Alex Chilton is the producer. And we'll listen to this <laughs> clip where they're kind of interestingly withering about Alex Chilton. Really? He was constantly he, he was constantly saying that we should we should be like the Clash and write songs about politics and stuff. I mean, like he thought so little of us that he was constantly saying this crappy shit, fifty shit you're doing. You know, we we've got to be making new wave music. That's what's popular now. That's what they're buying and stuff. I mean, like I get so sick of people talking about him like a great cult, cult hero. I mean, like. Uh, it's fine, you know, like, I don't want to shoot down. If somebody enjoys having him for a cult hero, that's fine and everything, but it's too bad. Uh, just 
I mean, that's pretty mm. interesting because everyone reveres Alex Chilton so much. It's quite. It's Alex quite... Chilton was the box tops, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah he, he was. was. He and was. Big the star. letter. Yes, which yes. is one of the yeah. all-time oh, fantastic, great, fantastic records. rock singles. I think. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think both Barney and I have a lot of time for Alex Chilton, but there has been created this sort of cult of Alex Chilton mm. from Big Star and so on and so forth mm. on, onwards. So it's quite refreshing to hear Lux Interior sort of, you know. Put a different gloss on it. I, 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 yeah, I was I was really kind of thrown by that mm. because it just sounds very unlike Alex Jordan, you know, to say we should be making kind of new wave records. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did genuinely fall in love with the Cramps and their whole kind of fifties mm-hmm. sort of voodoo shtick. So the idea that that songs the Lord taught us recorded at Sam Phillips, right? St- international studio in, in Memphis was going to be anything like The Clash just just seems so improbable but we have to take the former Eric Perkheiser's words for it <laughs> yeah. I love the fact that Poison Ivy who's also of course interviewed and yes, she's yes. sitting by his side was born Christy Marlena Wallace it's uh, just perfect and I love the, way the fact that they got together when he picked her up hitchhiking Absolutely. That's how the cramp started. Yeah. You know, they, you know, producers immemorially have tried to overimpose themselves yes. on artists. You know, you just got to think about Phil Spector yeah. and Leonard Cohen. You yes. Know, the two great ill matched talents. <laughs> well, Lux, Lux also says that he was drunk half the time and the other half of the time he didn't even show up to the studio. Yeah. I mean, that's what Chilton was. Ch- that, in was most days. that man would never have worked for the Melody Maker. <laughs> Really, I'd have been given really? a staff job, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> on the enemy. Um, <laughs> they also talk about they'd moved to Los Angeles by this time, and they talk actually quite extensively about what it's like for them and their type living in a city like Los Angeles. At home with the interior. Uh, well, they, we'll get onto that in a second. First of all, their hatred of tans. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. wrong city to hate yeah. tans, um, and how they can obviously have to maintain their pallid skin by staying indoors all the time. Um, they, they talk about the eighties as being a really dismal time for rock and roll, and which it was. Well, yeah, in some respects, in some other respects, it was mm. terrific. Depends on you know, where mm. you're coming from. At the end of the the podcast, we'll listen to a fairly marvelous description of well, life at home with. Lux and Ivy uh, and the the interior of their house, which yeah. is, is is rather fabulous, which it includes they started collecting drawings by serial killers. Mm. Uh, yes, yeah. and they got a rock from Ed Gein's house and things like that, and a portrait <laughs> of Lux on the wall by, by John Wayne Gacy. That's right. You know, it's it's slightly macabre. Like, I mean, I, I I have some problems with this stuff <laughs> because you know I know it's all meant to be very like ironic B movie Herschel Gordon Lewis stuff, but, but actually there's a slight insensitivity there that troubles me. Yeah. The way they talk about their kind of collections and did you ever see the Cramps? Like the Cramps? I Have saw any... the cramps. I liked them. Tried to book them when I had a TV show. Did you? And they never... They, they never showed up. Fucking turned up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was great. I mean, I like. I really did enjoy listening to them. I'd never heard Lux and Ivy kind of speak. What struck me, given how we think of the cramps, is just how serious they are mm-hmm. about all this kind of kitsch culture yep. that they're immersed in. He reminds me, listening to Lux, more than anything, he sounds a bit like Neil Young, the way he talks. And it's very peculiar. But, you know, given given that the, the cramps were 
you know, celebrating kind of kitsch and trash mm. culture. What you realize about them is, is there's a strange paradox is that it's actually a very serious kind of art form yeah, for yeah. them. You know, I saw them a number of times. I always yeah. enjoyed them. Me, I, and I always kind of assumed that they, you know, hanging out with the crumbs mm. would be kind of a laugh. Yeah, yeah. And there's nothing very funny. They're very, very earnest about these crazy, kitschy, well, trashy I mean, things. I mean, in a sense, when they, they talk earlier in an interview about how they resist being regarded as a pastiche act, is that's, in a sense, why they are so, yeah. so serious. Because if they aren't serious, then it's very easy for people to tag them yeah. as rock and roll revivalists and so on and so forth. Yeah. And it, I think you're right. In a way, the cramp's more like an art project than a band. I, that's my feeling. You know, I saw them t- twice, three times live... Hugely enjoyed them. Never felt I was looking at something reactionary. You know, the, the, yeah. there's so, something about the way they disported themselves on stage. I mean, I've seen countless sort of English pub rock, rock and roll revival bands and lots of stuff, and it's just revolting. Yeah. You know, yeah. and they were a quite different beast. Yes. E- even though sonically they were out of the Sun Studios and so on and so forth. It was just a whole lot more interesting than that. It's this a brilliant collision of very sort of feral rockabilly and sort of B-movie, very low-budget horror movies that yeah. I don't think anyone else yeah. quite but, did. They inspired a lot of but bands, But also, they're, they're, they're only one step away from sort of like almost no-wave bands, you, you know, of, of sort of out-there music. That, that actually sonically they will come, often go right out onto no the bass guitar until in fact a date with Elvis right. or when, when this album comes out but American culture out. breeds bands like that artists like that you know, because they don't have they don't have the kind of classical heritage that we have everything is commercialised you know their movies, their music their radio programmes yeah. So yeah, yeah. they pick up on it and they're more familiar with the, yeah. those yeah. sort yeah. of forms, I think. I think it's, I mean, if you're a Cramps fan, it's fascinating to listen to these. I mean, Lux died 2009, I think. So he's, he's yes. long gone. But I always had a soft spot for them. Saw three or four or five amazing shows. It was just a one-off in kind of rock and roll culture, I think. And it's, it's a really interesting interview to listen to. What else have you got for subscribers well, this for subscribers, week? Well, the first piece is just a news report, but it's to really welcome a new writer, Ivor Davis, who was the Daily Express's yeah. West Coast you correspondent. you remember that name? I do, indeed, yeah. yeah. Now, he didn't write much about pop, but he wrote about everything. So, mm. you know, politics... Blah, blah, blah. And this is a report on the death of Sam Cooke, 12th of December, 1964. Oh. And it's a very straightforward news report. You know, the, 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 the strap is hotel manageress fires three shots after girl in chase drama. But Ivor went on to really cover the Manson stuff yes. very, very closely. He's written a book. He has written. He's sort of self-published a book. Yeah, he's still alive. Yeah. Is he still in he, California? I don't know. Right. So we got masses of his stuff, but very, not much that we could use. But when he wrote mm. about Pop, it was as a news reporter. When he, when he was... He was a stalwart of the Daily Express. That's right. He really was. Very, he really was. So we're very glad to get him on board, because aside from having like critical writing, so on, I actually like just news reporting yeah. about music from the time. Second thing is, August 67... Melody Maker had this thing where it's called Blind Date, where an artist, <laughs> yes, yeah. an artist would kind of do sort of blind reviews of, of the week's singles. And this is Beach Boy Bruce Johnston. And they basically they put up this tape recorder in front of him and just record it mm-hmm. verbatim. 
Jimi Hendrix, The Burning of the Midnight Lamp, track records. Sounds like a demonstration record for the wow wow foot pedal or pickup. It almost sounds like vanilla fudge. Is it the backside? It's getting very good. I think the intro was too long. Oh dear, they stopped to take a rest again. Is Donald Duck the conductor? I'm not putting it down. It's good. It's very groovy, and now it's happening again. Good guitar solo. Get it on, baby. Now this wow-wow section makes sense after you've sung Loneliness is Such a Drag. These kind of records seem to reflect what the people on the scene think and which way everything is moving. Good. Hilarious. That was Bruce one Johnson. of the squarest people I've oh. ever met, Bruce Johnston. <laughs> so it doesn't, I mean, it's really funny to hear. The, the MM's blind date was Nick from Downbeat. Was it? Yeah, right. It was that basic idea. And blind date ran for quite a few years because it was a really good yeah. format. But generally speaking, most of the people, obviously well known, were terrible. Oh, yes. <laughs> they just didn't. It, it just showed you they didn't have I mean, did Bob, any critical it, appreciation. Was it the four tops we had from Blind Date the other day, which was absolutely hilarious? That was really good. Um, absolutely right. Paul McCartney's was quite good. Yes. That was good. I read that one. Yeah. yeah. yeah you know, he's he, sharp. Very, very sharp. Very cute. Yeah. Usually getting the artist right straight yeah, away. Right you know, was. Um, That was very revealing. This is a guy who really listens had to Had really stuff. good ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Still does, doesn't he? Absolutely. Sound 72, Martin Heyman interviewing Lou Reed. Now, this is interesting because... Martin Heyman? Yes. He's been on RBP for a while. <laughs> this is when Lurie was just finishing the recording of his first solo album in England. Produced by Bowie? No. This is the previous That one. was the previous one. I forget. It was produced by Richard Robinson. Richard Robinson. That's right. Yeah. Mr Lisa Robinson. Yes. Yeah, pretty well. In New York. Right. Anyway, this is Lurie talking about Andy Warhol. He said, Andy had this incredible ability to be at the centre of everybody, which ultimately caused us a lot of problems. And then he this goes on. Everyone assumes that Lou lived the life that he describes in his songs. And he says, Lots of the characters I wrote about, I wouldn't want to be alone in the same room, but I thought vicariously it might be fun for other people to meet them through music. Hmm. Which is kind of interesting, because there is an assumption that Lou lived a life, and actually Mm. it's not entirely true, Mm. or at Mm. least not to the extent that everyone sort of imagines. I mean, you must have sort of experienced the kind of fag end of that in literally... Do you really mean the press? It's sort of (laughs) mad... I, I mean, this, this, this sort of the Maxis period, yeah. the, the you know the this the, the by now slightly aging Warhol superstars of the of this yeah, of the yeah, yeah. six. I, I was used to get our Maxis about every other night, yeah. you know, and they'd yeah. all be there in the back room. You're never quite allowed to approach right. War, the Warhol's great the table, mm. but I saw some great acts there. I actually saw Springsteen play there with Bob Marley as his support. It was one Blimey. of the best. Uh, double bills I've ever seen. Do we have? Do you write a review of that for the melody? Maker? I may have done. That, mm. I think we may have that on the site. Yeah. So this is great. Actually, it's Talking Heads' first ever London show at the Rock Garden in Covent Garden. A certain Rich Williams. Dare we mention his name? <laughs> oh, for um, fuck's sake! <laughs> Writing for the Times, Richard says, two rock bands from New York, both conveniently accepted as constituents of the current new wave, are actually proposing a fresh and promising direction for the music. One is television, a lean quartet which arrives in Britain later this month. The other is Talking Heads, whose London debut occurred before the local punk 
Cognoscenti in a congested Covent Garden cellar on Friday night. That was quite a famous show. I mean, I actually tried to get in. I I, I couldn't. It was absolutely rammed, you know. And he said, he goes on later in the thing, he, he gets it. He's, you know, he talks about Psycho Killer as being this riveting song. I'd and love that, to have seen that um, show, I have to say. Yeah, you know, I mean, they, they were such a surprising band for all of us talking heads. They were yeah. like nothing else. Yeah. Sort of, you know. I mean, in some ways, I, my favourite album is that first album, even though I think they went on to do, uh, yeah. you could say, more interesting things. I still think I remain massively fond were of they- that record. They were sort of happened at the same time as punk, but they weren't really. Well, they weren't they weren't really I don't, really at all. I don't at all. think any of the New York bands outside maybe the, the Ramones. Dead, well, the Ramones, the Ramones, the, Ramones, the, dead, the Ramones. dead Boys, and people like that. But you know, but television, 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 television weren't a punk no, band in, in the literal sense. John, what fifteen-minute Johnny, Johnny Jewel, little Johnny Jewel, nothing yeah, at all to no, do with. Absolutely. Primitive life forms like the Sex Pistols. Well, quite. <laughs> Which is why I don't tag them as punk when we post mm. those articles on the site. You know, yes. you just no, can't. can't. I mean, no, I um, agree with you. Psycho killer. Moving on to 1988. Tiffany. Pop, oh, Tiffany. now we're talking. Max Bell. This is the number one magazine. Max, Max, Max Bell became Great. sort of Tiffany's... He, he, he interviewed her kind of regularly for Did the magazine. He? Yes, it's quite extraordinary. This is a man who would rather talk about the Grateful Dead than anything else. Somehow yeah, or the Blue Oyster Cult. Lights on to Tiffany. And she says, I've done a tour of shopping malls where I sign autographs and do a mini-show of take to take backing. Those places where kids of my age hang out, so it's a natural move. I don't think anyone's done it since the 1960s. So this was the new phenomenon yes. of the mall, the mall singers, yeah. uh, Debbie Gibson, Gibson being, sure. being another one. Yeah. The one, 1992, David Toop, the wonderful David Toop, is interviewing George Moroder. And uh, this is about I Feel Love. He, Neil Bogart of Casper Records, he liked the song so much that he wanted to have a long version of it. And that's when I did the 17-minute one. The official story is that he was playing it at a party. People wanted to hear it over and over. I think the real one is more like the bad story. He was doing some other thing than dancing. <laughs> some gonna, other I should, thing. I should have developed that this piece. like German accent, really, mm. to kind of get the full effect. Marky Smith of The Fall, interviewed by Lisa Verico, Vox, 1994. I hate hippie children and their fucking crusty rubbish. Why? Because they're the only generation to have turned out exactly like their parents. And later on, the country's turned into a bunch of whinging, mithering bastards, going on about nothing at all. Spoiled brats. I mean, Love the word mithering. Mithering. <laughs> is, is there a reason you didn't do that in a Mancunian accent? Uh, because I can't do a Mancunian okay, accent. just check it. And the last thing is, is just because I think this absolutely encapsulates the nauseating sort of self-regard of the, the Britpop mid-late 90s, the... the mm all these preposterous acts who really thought they were absolutely marvellous. And this is the audience, all lowercase, all one word. The audience is Sophie Ellis Bextor to Robin Bresnark, Melody Maker, 98. I'm still as good a pop star as any. I answer back, have opinions, I love the sound of my own voice. I fulfil the criteria. I mean, that's just... Sick making. Uh, <laughs> well, I like Sophie. She lives around the corner from me. Oh, oh right. Okay, we have a problem here, Wait, Houston. No. <laughs> I, I see her in the local garden centre every moment. Uh, you, you Chiswickians. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Chiswickian. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't stand her as a 
as an yeah. artist, you know, and there's something so smug and self-regarding. And this interview is just riddled with smug self-regard, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, so that... Well, anyway, I've, I've That's shot, your my, lot. My, my particular bolt has been now shot. I'm well, very I, keen on flamenco. <laughs> and I'm very keen on the flamenco rock artist, Rosalia. You know? Oh, no. Yeah, she's huge. She's huge. one of the biggest stars on the planet You right go to now. Spain and she's so big. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that was apropos of what, Mr Watts? I've been, it was just I a went random to Spain many years ago. No, I was just thinking about new things. Right, new things. New things that were good, yeah. as opposed to Sophie Ellis Bextor. 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 And I, I went to Spain some years ago and I saw Flamenco. I was absolutely bewildered. I think it was Spanish Delta Blues, really. Just make sure that Ms. Ellis Bextor doesn't listen to this episode <laughs> of the podcast. Otherwise, she may cut you dead in the garden sense. We'll have a conversation over the chrysanthemums. And I'll say, There's these couple of bastards just down the road. Yeah, that's us. <laughs> We're out of time, folks. It remains for us to thank you so much for coming in. You haven't had to come that far, but we're no. still eternally in your debt for thank coming you. in thank from so Chiswick. It's been a joy. And he's kept the laughter to a minimum, I think. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not in this oh, year, no, he no, hasn't. I've got tinnitus in this year badly enough as it is. After 65 episodes of the RVP podcast, you'll be having I just you can't hear out. You'll be at the Moorfields sort of. <laughs> That's the eye hospital. Oh, it's, it's, it's all the same. Yeah, who's <laughs> next week? Don't tell me Sophie Ellis Beck. Do you know what? The, awful, the sadness is next week there will be no podcast. What? I know. We're taking a break and then we're back the following week. Is that because. Our Jasper is mithering off Jasper on Jasper probably has, other, yeah, our mithering, mithering off on holiday. has other <laughs> things to do, better things to do. Yeah, this is, we are... We didn't talk about that. If anyone's listening to this in 100 years, we're in the midst of the <laughs> coronavirus <laughs> outbreak. The great plague of We may be dead by the time the next episode is due to be recorded. Look, we've had a lot of fun. I mean, if this, is, if this is the so. last ever music podcast, yeah. I'm glad it was you, Michael. You Thank you. I, Thanks I, for coming I, in. I generally end things. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you have a track record of some yes. littered with debris of various yeah. enterprises. <laughs> see me and die. Yeah, exactly. Um, we will see you in a couple of weeks. I believe Pete Perfides is coming Good. in as the guest. Yeah. But I couldn't swear to that Good. because my hold on the near future is shaky at the best of times. It might be Paul Gambaccini. It's either Paul Gambaccini or Pete Mafides. Not both. We will will hopefully be sat here having survived the virus. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Possibly possibly for good. (laughs) And it's goodbye from our special guest. Farewell. (laughs) Excellent. Bye. Our house is like a museum. We have beautiful homes. We really have a beautiful home. We have a bamboo bar with blinking lights. A tropical bar. And a go-go girl that when you push her button, when you push her button, she moves around and shake and she holds a drink she in front of her and drink. shakes the drink to mix your a really drink. Great bar. And we have a great big TV. We have a um, like forty-five inch. We have a big TV big set. Screen TV. So we watch movies a lot. And we have presents that we've given each other over the years that are real nice. We never Souvenirs throw anything away. of our adventures. It sounds very, very warm, though. I mean, I mean, not warm sun, but it's sort of very... Oh, it is. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a it's love It's a nest. true love story.
That was Lux Interior and Poison Ivy of the Cramps in conversation with Martin Aston in 1986, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Michael Watts. Find more of his writing on his Rocks Back Pages writer's page. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Try-